Welcome everyone to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. In this episode, we had Bob Ryan, who is the Director of Safety and Risk Management at Project Adventure, call into the office and have a wonderful discussion with our guest host, Chris Damboys. Welcome to Vertical Play Pen. You probably have figured out that I'm not Phil Brown by the accent not coming out of my voice this morning. I'm a guest host this morning, Chris Damboys. And I have the pleasure of um, having a conversation with the current director of safety and risk management for PA. He's also a uh, former teacher and adventure practitioner in the field. He is an expert witness in cases related to adventure programming, and he's also a former colleague and a good friend of mine, and I'm welcoming Bob Ryan this morning. Thanks for joining us this morning, Bob. Nice to be with you. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. So why don't you take a few moments? I sort of gave a quick introduction to you, but why don't you clean up anything that I maybe got incorrect or maybe you need to add to that? Uh, no, that was that was pretty accurate. I have been at Project Adventure since 1983. It's frightening to think about. Full-time since 1984. I started out in the field. My first real program was an early Project Adventure adoption in Massachusetts in 1975. And we worked with the folks at Project Adventure, which was relatively new, starting in 71. So I did just briefly, I, I, my first program lasted about six years. I then spent some time as an outward bound instructor and course director working out of Hurricane Island and the old uh, Dartmouth Outward Bound Center. And we'd work up in the Mahoosics and in the Adirondacks. I spent a year uh, working on a, a tall ship in Europe, a 156-foot schooner that was a school training vessel with American and uh, Canadian students, and we sailed from Denmark to Greece during the school year. Then since that time, I've been pretty much full-time at Project Adventure, and as you mentioned, I do uh, also have worked for about the last 15 years or so. I do work as an expert witness, third-party inspections, uh, a little bit of outside consulting that is separate from my day job at Project Adventure. I'm thinking back to, you know, young Bob as a, as a child or as a student in school, and I'm wondering what your earliest personal experience with adventure is, and I don't know what that may look like for you. Two things come to mind that are worth uh, mentioning. From my early days, my family lived in the Adirondacks. We lived in upstate New York. So from very early, early days, we were out in the country and we would spend time in the woods year round. We, we did downhill skiing and we, we did sailing. Uh, and those were certainly a formative experiences. But more specifically to your question of uh, the real event that probably hooked me into the world of adventure. When I was in high school, uh, I was lucky enough, I had, a, I had a 15 and a half foot dinghy. And in that time, by that time, our family had moved to Canada. We lived in Southern Ontario. And I was in high school and I, I got this idea with a high school buddy that we were going to take my boat, my little uh, dinghy, up to a place called Georgian Bay, which is the big bay off Lake Huron, which was close to us because we lived in southern Ontario. And we would sail and then during the day and then camp on the shore at night. I did that two, two summers. And we had, just to put it without going into the details, a, a fantastic adventure. As I look back on it now, it was pretty. It was a pretty ambitious thing to do for a couple of high school kids to sail. This is serious sailing and, and big water in a 15 and a half foot dinghy. And at that time, I was a pretty good sailor, but I'd spent, I, I wasn't very experienced in other aspects of, of outdoor living. So as I look back on it now, we didn't have things like uh, rain gear. <laughs> We had army surplus sleeping bags, no ground pads, so we'd just roll out the the, the gear uh, and sleep on the rocks. 
But those two trips, I think, really uh, probably changed my life because we were, frankly, probably lucky to, with all the adventures we had, we were probably lucky in some ways to come back alive. But we survived, and, and I was totally hooked. This was like, it was doing something where you go, this, this is what I want to do. Uh, this, this type of outdoor adventure was really formative. And I think that that probably, having those experiences in high school uh, certainly influenced all my decisions going forward. Yeah, I think about the definition of adventure, you know, outcome unknown, right? So you took off in your boat and probably had some sense of where you were, you were going and then you had to make your way back. And in between, there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of unknowns. And it was also the type of situation where if you're lucky enough uh, to make uh, a series of good and sometimes poor decisions, but you're able to survive it. Uh, those are the types of lessons you you never forget that you you've learned by doing them wrong, but you're lucky enough not to pay too steep a price for uh, your bad judgment. When did your uh, participation in the Knowles course happen? Is that soon after in college? I was in college uh, at Middlebury College in Vermont. I had started hiking with the Middlebury College Mountain Club you know, my first hike up Mount Marcy in the Adirondacks. And I had started uh, backpacking and hiking. Uh, another friend, a college friend and I did a Western trip in the summer of, I think, 1970. And we went all over, drove out the Trans-Canada Highway, went, you know, to as many national parks as we could. But I remember very distinctly hiking in the whole rainforest in the Olympic Mountains of Washington. And in those days, we're, we're in college, we could hike up to the snow fields and then we could look up at uh, Mount Olympus for example and it, the, the obvious question is how do you get up there and around that time uh, Life Magazine used to be very popular and I think it was Life Magazine had an article on Paul Petzl and we didn't know much about him but that article was like this looks interesting so I ended up uh, I, I learned about Knowles and Petzl in college and I ended up signing up for a Knowles course, uh, North Cascade Mountaineering in the summer, August of 1973. So that was, you know, we learned about that. The purpose was to sort of advance, advance my skills beyond just, uh, you know, hiking in the woods. And that was, a, that was a great experience. So that was really po uh, at post-college. And did you have other people that listeners may know as teammates on that expedition? Uh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, one one of the people on our course was a gentleman by the name of Lewis Glenn that some of our listeners may know. Lou, I'm still in touch with Lewis. Lewis went on to hold various positions within, I think, both Knowles and Outward Bound. And for many years was, I don't remember exactly how they described that title, but he worked in the national office of Outward Bound as their national, one of, one of their national safety directors. So Lewis and I were on the same class. And it's funny because uh, I've gone to the uh, Wilderness Risk Management Conference one time with you, Chris. And every time I go, Lewis spots me in the audience and, and points me out. And although most of the people in the audience don't know who, who this guy is, but we, so Lewis and I go back to 1973. The other interesting character on our course was a guy by the name of George. And George was Lewis's tentmate. And this was one of those stories I didn't figure out till years later. Uh, George Willick was the first guy, I think one of the first guys to climb the World Trade Towers on the outside. So he went from uh, our Knowles course and then got quite a bit of notoriety for, I don't think he had permission, climbed up the outside of the World Trade Towers. So, so if you get George Willick's book, which I have a copy somewhere, Carl Ronke gave me a copy. There's pictures from our Knowles course in 1973 and pictures of George uh, climbing the World Trade Towers. So those were two of, two of the people on, on my course. I was going to say that's quite a, quite a group of people that assembled together at that time, not knowing where people would go in their lives later. But yeah, that's interesting. What was your first sort of professional experience as an adventure practitioner in the field? I majored in, in biology. A good friend of mine said, you know, you might want to take uh, an education course. You could, in those days, you could fairly easily get your teaching certificate. And I think you had to take problems and methods and secondary education and then do some practice teaching. 
So I had majored in biology. I was interested at that point. I was already interested in in education. I think the term we used in those days was outdoor education. That was the common term. What I was looking for was a teaching job where I could teach science and outdoor education. I actually had applied at some private schools and so forth. And a friend of mine had learned about Project Adventure. He was working at Landmark School at that time. So he, he, he said, uh, why don't you come help me, you know, in those days, why don't you come help me build the ropes course at Landmark School? So this was the first, you know, that was what you were expected to do in those days. It's a very modest affair, cables and stuff like that, low, uh, low elements only. But through that contact, he had met some people who were starting this early uh, Project Adventure adoption. He said, you ought, to, you ought to talk to them. So I had already actually been offered a teaching job. And I was sort of like, well, I already have a job. I don't need another job. My friends really said, no, you, you need to go check out this uh, Project Adventure thing. We went over to Hamilton Wenham High School, looked at the ropes course. Uh, this is interesting. But through that contact, uh, I ended up uh, applying for and then was hired as the program specialist for uh, this early adventure program. And it turned out to be a terrific opportunity. So, and that was my first real professional job in, in the field, working in a public school that had been funded to start a project adventure uh, adoption. Since many of us sort of look back on our early years in the field with some level of like nostalgia, is there something in particular about that job you miss? Well, it was, it was a great learning experience, and I, I loved working with those kids. We worked mostly with high school kids, and we really had, you know, we really had the freedom to do pretty much what we wanted to in those days. So my job was build a ropes course. Well, I'd never built a Well, I helped my friend put up a little one at Landmark School. Uh, but you were kind of expected to uh, build the ropes course and train the staff and set up the program. Uh, but we also ran a very robust outdoor trip program. So we were taking high school kids out, uh, whitewater canoeing, winter camping, cross-country skiing, rock climbing, year-round. And that was really, uh, I, do, I do miss that. Uh, I've always thought that in a perfect world, if you're working with kids of that background, the ability to have a challenge course-based program and a wilderness-based trip program together, the two really complemented each other very well. You know, I'm still in touch with, you know, those students are all grown up now, like your age, you know. It's, it, it's, it speaks to the power of those experiences. I'll go back to Lewis Glenn for a second. You know, Lewis and I were on our nose course in 1973. That experience was so powerful that when we get together, we still talk about what happened in 1973. Yeah. Uh, the students I work with, my first program, you know, th those experiences, they, they stay with you your whole life. You never, you never forget them. After Middlesex, is that when you went on the tall ship? From 80, 81 to 84 was outward bound, a mix of outward bound and the tall ships. So gotcha. I next went to work at outward bound. And then in yep. the middle of the outward bound, my, my year on, on the Tevega, which was the tall ship, was 82, 83. So those, those two activities uh, overlapped. Uh, and when I came back from, from Europe, I, I was sort of bouncing around doing some outward bound courses. And then that's when I got asked to do some building for Project Adventure in August of 83. And then uh, I was sort of had my foot in both worlds for a period of time and then finally ended up going full-time at Project Adventure in the summer of 84. So what, did, what was your job in the summer of 84? Were you a new assistant builder building challenge courses? <laughs> yeah, I started out as, as a builder. I mean, that's, you know, most people did. I went out with Jimmy O'Neill, uh, my first building uh, project. And the first site we went to was a place up in Vermont, uh, which was at that time, Tom Leahy's old program uh, up in Pine Ridge School. And that was the first place we, we built. And just to give you a little sign of the times, 
So we went out, this is August of 83, and Carl had been experimenting with a new way to climb up trees. Because prior to the use of staples, we used to drill holes in the trees and put pegs in them, plastic pegs. Uh, and Carl had found these big steel staples. And I remember this was my first building job for Project Adventure. He gave us a few staples to me and, and, and Jimmy and said, here, try these out. And off we went. So we actually placed a few staples on Tom Leahy's course. And those were probably some of the very first staples ever utilized in the challenge course industry then. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you see their advantages immediately? We did. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, the old system, which I had to do for a while. I had done it, you know, when we built our first course, the, the early, pe- you got to go way back to see the pegs. This is, this is really the early days of building. The first pegs we used were, were white polyethylene pegs. And they were, you know, Carl's idea of an artificial tree limb. And you had to drill a pretty, you know, one inch diameter hole and sort of shave off the edge and then pound these things into the, into the, into the tree. Uh, and it took quite a while to, to create a climb. So right away, we could see if these staples worked out, this would be some greater efficiencies. The white polyethylene was the first branch, and then it later went to the gray PVC, but it was the basic idea. So if you yeah. go way back in the old days and you look at the photos, you'll see those, those pegs in the trees. And that, well, we're talking 83. So really, the, the courses in the 70s and the early 80s still had uh, the pegs. And then we pretty quickly switched over to staples after 83. You arrive at PA, you're building, and this is prior to the development of standards in ACCT. And so basically, PA is the source of innovation at that point in time in the challenge course industry. Besides the development of the staples, are there other things that as you progressed in your career there that you remember being sort of breakthrough moments in terms of either technology or systems or practices? Well, there were a lot of things. First of all, I'd say, uh, personally, it was a very good learning experience for me because, because I had some background in building, but I'd also had a background in programming. In those early days, it would be very common for me to go to a client site, probably with another builder, and build a brand new course. And then, and then because I had developed skills as a trainer, I would stay on and then train their staff. So I meant I was on the road quite a bit, but as I look back on it, it was really an ideal learning experience because building and training weren't as separated as they've become, you know, going forward in the future. So I was lucky enough to, and there's there's nothing better for me in terms of building a course with something and then getting to use it right away. And then you see how you get the immediate feedback on what worked and what could be done better. You know, so that was a, you know, that was a great experience, but the field was growing and there was a lot of things going on. This is before ACCT, but there was a lot of interest in certification and there was talk about standards. And a lot of that was coming out of, uh, from Mike Fischescher. He, as you know, was the person that organized the early, they were called Ropes Course Builders Symposia. And Mike organized those. And I always have to think, Table Rock, I think I want to say, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. By now, it's into the late 80s. I think Table Rock was, I always forget, 1988 or 1989. But all during the 80s, uh, there was talk of certification and standards, but it wasn't really until Fish Escher started organizing the Builders Symposium that that talk turned serious. And that was uh, the precursors to the formation of ACCT. That was around the time that we didn't meet, but we first had some early correspondence back around that time frame. You were building for PA and I was working at Outward Bound as a climber out of the new rebase and we were responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of the challenge courses there. And I think you probably had a hand in designing that course or perhaps even even building it, but I remember sending pulleys to you asking about their durability 
And there were some issues with, you know, different grades of aluminum. We don't need to get into that. But I remember that was probably the first time I started noticing who you were as a practitioner in the field. Yeah, well, again, it was it was another it was a great opportunity for me. I'd have to think back because once I started working at Project Adventure, I so I had, uh, you know, I had some history in the outward bound world. And I and in those days, since there were so few ropes course builders, you didn't have to work very long at it before you were like one of a handful of people that knew how to do stuff that very few people knew how to do. So I was when I was hired at Outward Bound by Jed Williamson, there was a course at the Dartmouth Center. And so Jed asked me to help upgrade that and bring that course up to uh, the current standard. So that ended up, I ended up doing a number of courses. I did a course for the Baltimore Outward Bound School. Uh, there, was a, there was a course at the White Mountain School, which was connected to Outward Bound. And then I ended up, I knew Jeff Parsons from my Outward Bound days, and they asked me to take a look at the, the new recourse. So I ended up rebuilding a major part of that, of that course. So that was, again, it was a great, it was a great experience because I, I had my hands in, in both worlds, the project adventure world, and then bringing some of that within those days was you know, new technology to Outward Bound. And then a little bit later, uh, I met Jane Panacucci, who was the head climber at Hurricane Island, the sea school. She asked me to uh, take a look at their old course and would, would we, Project Adventure, and help them. We ended up building a whole new course on Hurricane Island. And that's when I think I probably met you for the first time. Yeah, that's when we actually met face-to-face for the very first time with that on Hurricane when they brought me over to help support the effort to get that challenge course in. That's when I first met you and a young intern named Rich Kleinchuk, actually. Yes. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And I have photos of us. Uh, in those days, we, we needed a cargo net. So we just had a big spool of rope and uh, a six pack of beers. And we just um, uh, put it together there. And I've got photos of, uh, of us from, yeah. from those in the, days. In the dining hall, sitting there in the evening. Yes. Building the cargo net that we needed to put up the next day. How does your role as a builder then transition into your emerging role as the director of safety and risk management? Was that something that that the company identified as a need or was it an extension of your growth as a professional in the field and it just sort of became a position you created for yourself? That's an interesting question. Uh, uh, I'm going to start by quoting uh, Gary Nussbaum, who we both know well, long-term project adventure trainer. One time at a trainer refresher, this was quite a few years ago, uh, Gary introduced me and he said, he introduced me as the person who became the safety person at Project Adventure before Project Adventure knew they needed somebody to do that. And I think that that's fairly accurate. I have almost no formal training in risk management or safety, but I think uh, that was one of the roles that just kind of naturally evolved. You know, because of the nature of our programming, you know, we were constantly subjected to sort of answering the question, how safe is this type of programming? So that was on our minds sort of like morning, noon, and night. We did have a a safety committee in those days, and I ended up being on that safety committee and then eventually becoming the chair of the safety committee. But my safety and risk management is coming all out of the field, not out of uh, really any very little formal training in that area whatsoever. We were really kind of making it up as we went along. Taking real-time data and making good decisions based on what you're seeing and doing in the field and hearing from the field. Yeah. And the the other thing I'll mention, because it is historically part part of the record, as the you know Project Adventure was a recognized leader, as the field was developing, there were questions about standards. Those discussions were starting and there was questions about certification, as there are even even still today. Dick Prouty asked me, and I'm sure Steve Webster worked on it as well, and others, to take a look at the question of certification fairly early after I started working at, at Project Adventure. And we, we talked to other people in the field. And the net result of that is 
what Project Adventure decided to do was to certify programs. And that was our first program accreditation. And that was certainly influenced by you know, other people in the field. So we did not early on embrace individual certification for practitioners, but we decided to develop and offer a program of basically program certification, which we called accreditation because we thought that was a better term. And, uh, and we well, actually offered that uh, program for quite a few years. And because the field was new, there was quite a bit of interest in the early days. And, oh, you could get Project Adventure to come in, review your program, and, and, and accredit it. And get this endorsement that you were doing yes. best practices and you were safe. And do you think people were doing that out of a need to know they were being safe and doing quality work? Or was it more of we could put a stamp on it and then we could market ourselves to that standard? I think it was a combination of both. I think both of those factors were, were significant. I think, you know, if you were a teacher in a school and you had internal resistance, you know, school board members and school administrators, they'd go, what are you doing with our kids? You know, this, we want to know, are you trained? Are you certified? Is your program certified? Uh, yeah. There was also interest in how do we keep this insured? You know, insurance companies were being asked to cover stuff. This was new to them. Yeah. So yes, it was. I, th I think it was. The, it was a good program, and it was very much a sign of the times that uh, there was a need for that, and it made sense for Project Adventure in the early days to to do that because there really wasn't. There really weren't the type of vendors that we have in the field now was still a fairly new field. If accreditation was one tool of risk management, what, what is your definition of risk management for our listeners? Like, what does Bob Ryan say risk management is? <laughs> That's probably not going to lend itself to a, uh, a short off the top of my head answer. I'll probably have to think about that a little bit. Why don't I read you Betty Vandersmissen's definition? You can tell us what you think of that in relative terms. So I think this is in, uh, she wrote this in 1997. She writes, it's this systematic analysis of one's operation for potential risk exposures, and then setting forth a plan to reduce the severity and frequency of such exposures. It's the diagnostic process with preventative actions which forestall problems. She says, risk management has three primary parts, the analysis of the risks, the policies and procedures and practices that reduce the risks, and then the implementation of that plan. Not surprisingly, I think that's a, a very good definition and not one that I could have pulled out of thin air, but uh, Betty uh, is, is a perfect person to articulate that. And I, and I, I would agree with that definition. I would add this to a uh, slightly different take on it. And I remember doing this as an exercise with Jane Panacucci and others. We were actually at a conference in Australia, and one of the exercises that the presenter gave us was list your top five risk management strategies. What are the things that you do as programmers and as risk managers that constitute your risk management strategy? And I found that a very interesting exercise that I borrowed from that person. Uh, and it was interesting sitting next to Jane, because when we compared notes, our, our, our list of top five was, as I recall, very similar. I'd have to do a little digging to figure out exactly what it was. But it was, you know, stuff that would be familiar to you and me of the type, types of things that constitute sort of the heart of what you're actually doing when you're implementing a risk management plan. But I like Betty's uh, definition. I think that's uh, excellent. So given that definition in your role, current role at PA, what, what exactly do you do? What are you responsible for? So I, I, I would divide it into two, two fundamental parts. I am responsible for uh, risk management issues within project adventure operations. So I, I chair our risk, we, we use both terms, safety and risk management, safety and risk management committee. And the purpose there is oversight of our own operations, what we do. If it's in the safety and risk management area, it's within that purview. But the second part of my job is to be a resource to our, our client, the organizations we work with, our client base. So the second half of my job is to be a resource as needed for any of the client organizations we work with on issues of safety and risk management. 
So there's really those two, two fundamental parts. One example would be uh, there could be an accident or a close call at a client site. And this could be a close call and nobody got hurt. There's, there's concern that we need to look at procedures or, and study what happened, what could have happened, and make adjustments as, as necessary. So that's something that I would do on a, on a fairly regular basis. That would be kind of a safety audit, safety review uh, type yeah. of exercise. And that could be that could be both a very specific uh, charge. So, for example, there was a participant on a high ropes course element that became disconnected from their belay or their carabiner opened up and they ended up connected to a high element and it created a rescue-like scenario. So the question might be, can you help us look at that specific problem and help us come up with a re remediation, come up with ways that uh, we can keep that from happening. Or it might be more broad-based. Can you take a look at our training program and how we're hiring staff and how we're training staff, how we're certifying staff? So again, it could run the whole gamut from something, a very specific charge, help us look at this specific issue or give us a broader review of, of our operations. So those are certainly examples. More extreme examples, and this more uh, covers over into uh, my work uh, as an expert witness, uh, it might be what we call a third-party inspection. So if things have gone horribly wrong, which they don't do very often, but they sometimes do, and somebody is killed on a course, I may be asked to do a third-party inspection, which would be defined as, can you go in, uh, review this accident, and find out what happened, why the accident happened, and make recommendations? Now, that's at the more extreme end, but that is something that I've done and uh, is, is, you know, is necessary to do. Wearing your risk manager hat, if a new program's starting up, what are some key things that they should focus on? That's, that's a great question and, and it could lend itself to maybe a longer answer than, than we have time for, but I'll give a couple, couple examples. So let's say there's a new program and they want to start a program and they want to build a challenge course. It's very common for a new program to equate uh, building a ropes course with starting a program. And I think there's good reasons for that. I think building a course is, it's the, it's the thing you can see. When you're developing a program, parts of it are invisible. But when you build stuff, when you build a ropes course, low and high elements, and it's, the, it's what you can see. So for many years, the, the program and the, and the equipment on which it takes place kind of seem like the same thing, even though they're not. So for new programs starting out that want to build a, a course, it's all, very common to have a conversation with, you know, you're explaining them as example. Building your challenge course is probably one of the easiest things you're going to do. Uh, it's the thing you can see. It's, it's very engaging for a lot of reasons. But building a course is not the same as developing a program. Developing a program is, is much harder and requires steps like figuring out why you want to do this, what you want to do, with whom, when, uh, how's that all going to work. So there's, there's a lot more work behind the scenes that new programs have to do to figure out how to develop a program. Developing a program, we've also found over the years, takes longer than people think. Uh, developing a new program can easily be a three, four, five, or more year process to get everything figured out. So we'll get people, you know, they get funding, they're excited, they want to build a course, they want to get the course up in May, and they think their program will be fully ready to go in June. So you're doing a process of education saying there's a lot more to it than that. And some of the things you want to do is, uh, for example, there's just strategies that, that work better. I've always encouraged new programs, don't wait till you're, the typical thing is people would have a challenge course built and then they would get their staff trained. I always encourage people wherever possible, start your staff training early. That's one of the first things you want to do because you want to be knowledgeable about what type of program you're going to have. And once you start taking trainings, you're going to, it's going to make more sense to you what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and you're going to, when you can do that, you're going to develop, you're going to have a stronger program development plan 
if you get your staff exposed to the to the programming. And you're also being exposed to other programs. You want to see what you're not reinventing the wheel. You're 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 you, you can draw on strategies that have worked for other programs. That's going to be very helpful. So those are some of the things that you, you want to see. So helping helping a new program understand the time frame, what's realistic, what's important. It's a lot harder to ask the questions, who's going to do this program? Who's going to teach it? When's it going to happen? What are your goals? And how does how do your activities line up with your goals? That's the hard work of program development. And you don't want to do it on your own. You want to get help. There are, you know, this great expertise out there. And those are the things that are, are important, but they're also harder to see. This leads me back to the reference you made before when you were talking about being at that conference in Australia with Jane Panacucci and, and that exercise that that risk manager had you do. What were those overlapping strategies when you said there were five sort of key strategies that, what, what would those be? I, I'm assuming these are some of the nuts and bolts that you would want that emerging program to think about. The ones that I can recall just, you know, off the top of my head yep. uh, that are of interest would be, you, you know, so basically the question is, what are your top risk management strategies? So yeah. many people will list staff training, but a lot of programs don't also list staff hiring. So that's something I think I, I could speak for my friend Jane, you know, where we kind of shared that idea that if you didn't pay close attention to who you were hiring and what skills they needed to have, you could have the best staff training program in the world and your results aren't going to be good. So we used to think of it, uh, one of the models I used to use is, is a pie chart and, and say, list all your risk management strategies and then Make, make each size of the pie reflect how important it is to you. Uh, so a third one might be, well, we're going to have a uh, LOP. We're going to have written operating procedures. And that's something most people would agree, well, that's probably a good, a good thing to have. But the more interesting question to me is when you look at the program, you step back and you say, what role do written procedures play in the overall risk management of this program? And we've all been to programs where they they'll have an LLP manual that's 250 pages. Well, that's not necessarily wrong, but the thing that I'd be looking for is is your is your risk management strategy balanced? In other words, did you think because you made such a thorough prescriptive LLP document that all your work is done and that you could, for example, hire young, inexperienced staff and just give them this big manual and you'd be all done. So you're looking for that kind of balance of who did you hire? How did you train them? What written procedures do you have? And are those three strategies in balance? Those those are the more interesting and the harder questions to answer. Uh, This one's a little bit uh, tongue in cheek, but I've often used the expression, have a good plan. It's very simple. Its corollary is, and this would often be advice to other uh, PA staff or other people in the field, don't get caught up in somebody else's bad plan. So both of these expressions are reflections of program design. I was called in for a program that had a loss, had an accident and had a lawsuit. And they asked me to take a look at what was going on. Well, uh, the plan was they had a high school program, and the activity they were doing was the zip wire. And the class had approximately 80 students in it. Their plan was to expose these kids to the zip wire, and they had very few staff, uh, not very well-trained staff, and a lot of kids. So their strategy was, well, let's run them through as quickly as possible. And it is military after all, so they can order them around, they'll get in the habit of following orders. I mean, it sounds almost like a joke, but, you know, and then they end up having an accident. Well, uh, you know, that would be to me an example of somebody should have noticed that's not a particularly good plan to have 80 kids in a short period of time and running them through really fast uh, in order to accommodate the large numbers. 
So there's an extreme version of it, but I would submit that that same approach, what are you trying to do? The question for your staff is, not that they have a training or not. That's what people do. Well, did they have a training? Yeah, they had a training. That's not, the, that's not the key question. The key question is, does your staff have the skills and the expertise and the training to do the job that you're asking them to do? That's a higher bar. And that's the question everybody should be asking. You know, I know in the late 80s, early 90s, that this sort of idea of could accidents that are occurring somehow affect our industry in a way that would negatively hurt all of these organizations, including Project Adventure and others like them. And the idea of standards emerging and, you know, there's organizations like ACCT, which are very focused on you know, specific challenge course and adventure zipline standards. And then there's AEE, which is looking at a more broad-based adventure education standards. And I'm, you had a hand in supporting both of those organizations in, in much of their standards development piece. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the sort of different approaches that those two organizations take to their standards development. You know, historically, I mentioned earlier that because the field was new, Project Adventure launched into offering program accreditation pretty early on in our, in our history, certainly in the 80s. As the field grew, AEE, Project Adventure was a founding member of both AEE and ACCT, AEE being, of course, the older organization. So once we get up to like the mid to late 80s, I think the discussion within AEE had also turned, AEE had recognized that certification accreditation issues were important. So AEE launched a, a program accreditation program, and I, I served on that original group. Uh, we were asked, uh, as did Dick Prouty, to uh, help develop that program. So we drew on our experience within PA, but AEE developed an accreditation program, which still exists to this day. Project Adventure still participates in that. And it has a particular approach. You know, a lot of people have contributed to that. In the era that we, we got started, that I'm most familiar with, the AEE manual was written by Jed Williamson and Mike Gass. Of course, a lot of other people have had a hand in it. The AEE model, there, there's similarities. The AEE model was... I think, strongly influenced by the experience of Outward Bound. The Outward Bound, particularly in the national office, had developed peer review model. So that influenced both what Project Adventure did and what AEE did. In fact, in the early days of developing the AEE accreditation, AEE was sponsoring peer reviews. And then over time, I don't know whether you recall, it evolved into a peer review didn't give you a pass-fail, so it evolved into a more formal pass-fail accreditation program. When ACCT came along, really sort of driven from the explosive growth of challenge course-based programs, ACCT faced some of the same types of challenges. And the response uh, was not, not that dissimilar. I remember, because I was on the board in the early days of ACCT, the big question in the early days of ACCT was a little different than AEE. Uh, in ACCT, once we came out with standards, the big question was people could join ACCT and they could tell their clients, I'm a member of ACCT. And therefore, there was a assumption that a member of ACCT would know and follow all their standards. And we very quickly realized that was a problem, that uh, the ACCT was, in, in effect, giving a tacit endorsement. Uh, you had different levels of membership. It was called, you know, if you were a voting member of ACCT, well, how could you be a voting member of ACCT and not be following their standards? So we realized in, in ACCT world that we needed to get out and develop uh, a program to verify that people who were members, and that's where the 
PVM uh, system. It, it wasn't called PVM early on, but we eventually evolved into ACCT's accreditation program. So there's differences and there's similarities, but I think some of the, I think the AE program is sort of drawn, uh, driven more by the public's knowledge wanting to know that the program met certain standards. And ACCT's was similar, but much more specifically driven by the fact that people were really paying attention to these new ACCT standards, which were much more specific, much, and with the growth of the challenge course field, people were really paying attention to that. And that's why ACCT uh, went into that, did the direction that they did. And that PVM model, that professional vendor member model, was it also a peer review model, right? Your, your competitive peers were observing your program to make sure you met standards. Yes, they're both, they're both peer review uh, models. The difference that I would say is if it's just a peer review, at the end of the review, the reviewers or the review team are not asked to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. So you can still do a peer review that just is, we looked at the program, we made these recommendations. But, uh, if, but if, if, as soon as you start calling it accreditation, then at the end of the, the process, you have to say, and program A, B, or C does or does not meet accepted standards. And then, of course, you have to have the accepted standards that you say that the program is meeting or exceeding. That leads me back to a little bit. You mentioned your, your work in the last 15 years as an expert witness and taking on third-party inspection and, and you know, accident reviews for, for programs that have had unfortunate things happen for them. Are there sort of these seminal accidents or incidents in the field that continue to shape how and why we do things? Like, are there a few without revealing details that you, you shouldn't reveal, but like, are there a few out there that you're like, this was pivotal and this really changed either how most programs do their work? When I first started at Project Adventure and, and, Soon there, you know, fairly soon after, as the ACCT standards were first taking shape, there was the issue of the annual course inspection. So, the annual professional course inspection is something that was not really widely accepted until it was promoted by Project Adventure, and then Project Adventure, along with the other founding members of ACCT wrote into that very first standards document that uh, an annual professional course inspection was required. Then that, of course, raised the whole issue of who's qualified to do those inspections. So you asked about what's seminal. So if you look at accident data, because I have accident data that I've shared with you and we, we worked on various versions over the years. If you look at accident data going back to the 1980s, uh, one of the categories we look at is where was there an accident where something broke, equipment failure, something broke and led to an injury, an accident, uh, maybe even a fatality. We now, nowadays, people pretty much accept that they need to have an annual course inspection. If you look at the accident data and say, what impact has that standard had? It's very clear looking at safety data going back 40 plus years that we see fewer accidents where something broke. And I think that you can, I think it's a reasonable explanation is to say that the adoption of the annual course inspection played a role in that and is a good thing to do. And as a success because, you know, you're looking at the data, but you're looking at an absence of things breaking and people uh, getting injured. So that's, you know, that's an example. When accidents are happening now, they're probably due to operator error, some human uh, mistake, if you will, in, in operations. The compliance out of our clients to get their annual inspection is pretty high, right? They just all do that, like you're suggesting. But the compliance around keeping updated on staff skills, current training, best practice, is always an ongoing battle. Is there going to be something that's going to flip that switch and make that easier for programs to just do like they do their current course inspections? I got to go back to the 
criteria I use and, and, and expand on the language a little bit. So, so the categories that one of the categories you referenced is something we see. So we look at an accident, what happened, uh, what is the, is the cause? Did something break? Okay. Or was it operator error, sometimes called facilitator error? So that category, operator error, facilitator error, that's one of the criteria that we look at regularly. And we look at reported accidents going back quite a few years. And operator error or facilitator error accounts for a substantial number of accidents every year. Another closely related one, but it's a little bit different uh, that I've added in my own analysis is called failure to follow accepted practices. So that's a little bit different because you, you might say, well, if their LOP said they're supposed to do this and then didn't do it, then we'd say that's operator error. But if what they were doing was what they were expected to do at their program, but other programs you know, with perhaps greater experience to say they shouldn't have been doing that particular procedure, uh, then that's a slightly different category. So I've used those categories as a way of you know, looking at accident analysis to see, uh, you know, where those fit in. There, you're right. The premise of your question is, you know, let's take Commonwealth of Massachusetts just wants to know when we go in and do an inspection, you know, is there a training plan? It's a lot easier question to answer. And I'm not picking on Massachusetts. It's a fairly common thing. Is there a training plan that people had training? It's a much harder question to ask to say, well, does the training plan work? Do the people who are trained, do they have, as I mentioned earlier, the skills that they need uh, and the expertise and the competence to do the tasks that the program gives them? That's a much harder question to answer. Part of the answer to me is a good certification program is a way to address that issue. Unfortunately, a bad certification program probably makes the situation worse, meaning you say, well, we got all our staff certified, but we didn't, it wasn't really a good program. So we can say, yes, they're certified, but the certification doesn't really address you know, what the issues are. And that's the type of thing that I think is the reason I'm, I continue to be interested in looking at real accidents and close calls and so forth, because that's when you really get, that's where the real learning comes in. When you look at, here's what happened, what was the breakdown, what would be the remedy, what, what, should, what should the program have done uh, that they didn't do? And those, those remedies are available to us now, but they're, hard, they're not in the public, they're not embraced in the public realm, and they're harder for people to understand because of all the complexity around it. It's much easier to say, course inspection, pass, fail, they, they inspect it, and so forth. The judging of the staff competence is a much trickier thing to handle. It's not that we can't handle it, but it's a lot harder to to handle. I'm sure some of our listeners are are interested in this as Programs are emerging again after, in many cases, long shutdowns after, you know, the start of this pandemic, this coronavirus challenge that we're in. Are there top, you know, strategies around managing the coronavirus challenge within the context of challenge course programming that people should be thinking about? Part of my answer is the things that are were good to do before the pandemic are still good to do during and after the pandemic. Because I've had the opportunity to uh, work on and investigate some some of the most serious accidents in the field, fatality. In 2015, I had four fatal accidents during that one year alone. That's unusual to have that much. If I'm asked the, the following question, what is the single best risk management strategy that programs could use to prevent the type of serious accidents that I've had a chance to see. And I would say the most, the best and probably the most underutilized risk management strategy is a peer review, a safety audit. It's in the ACCT standards uh, that you're supposed to, every program is supposed to have one every five years. A lot of people don't remember it's in there. 
A lot of programs don't actually do that. But if you look at something, when I look, when I look at the serious accident stuff I had, and I said, you know, uh, the, they got an annual inspection, you know, they had a training program. What, what risk management strategy would have helped prevent this major breakdown that led to a fatal accident in this program? And I keep coming back to the same answer. A, a, a qualified program safety review or safety audit where you, the program hires one or more experts. If you don't hire the right people, it's a waste of time. Uh, you've got to hire the right people to come in and do that big picture review. Let's look at everything. Let's look at the whole, uh, the whole thing. So I would say during the pandemic era, that's still true. Uh, because programs that want to start up, partly because of the mix of good information and misinformation that's out there, there are some programs uh, that are going to go to start up. And the concern will be that they're going to change their procedures because they perceive that they need to due to the pandemic. And it's very important anytime you change procedures that the changes do not themselves become a contributing factor to an accident. So programs are going to have all the same issues they did before the pandemic with some new ones thrown in. So I would say it's a perfect time to have your, all your procedures reviewed. You know, do, your, do your inspection, do your training, but don't miss uh, the program safety review because it can be one of the most valuable things that you do. And you know, in this age of the pandemic, uh, it would be, I think, you know, perfectly fine. Uh, it would be perfectly appropriate. It would still be the best the best strategy going forward. What advice would you give to new practitioners starting out in the field? So somebody maybe comes from an outdoor ed degree, or maybe they've come up through the camping world and they've become, you know, an adventure practitioner working on a challenge course. If they want to have a long career in this field and they want to have a significant impact, like we've had the good fortune to do, what, what advice would you give them as they start out? Well, I, I think there's several pieces of it. W- one, of the, one of the conversations I, I've often had when I'm talking to somebody that's younger and newer in the field, and maybe they're still trying to figure out what they want to do in the field. Uh, one of the pieces of advice that I've used is I'll say, figure out what you want to become expert in. And the reason I say that is I feel like any of us has the opportunity to develop expertise, to become an expert, uh, but it's going to take time. And I think Paul Petzold famously had a, had a quote that it's great to be doing something a lot, uh, provided you're not doing it wrong. So you, you really have the two pieces. You want to have the 10,000 hours, you know, you want to have the time on task, but you also want to have the direction from qualified people that you're, that you're doing it properly. But I find that this, the looking at it as an expert uh, thing is interesting to me. And I think it's a good way to look at it because, you know, I'm considered an expert in certain areas. And I don't know exactly when that happened. But as I look back on it, I realize it happened because of time on task uh, and, and worked at it, you know, for, for many, many years. So at a certain point that you could be in any field, you could be you know, doing landscaping. If you really like landscaping and you do it long enough and you have good direction from other people and you're doing it properly and learning, at a certain point in time, you're going to become a landscaping expert. And it's different once you become an expert or you've developed a level of expertise where you you can function and you have valuable skills. So it's a way of looking at how you want to do stuff. So if if I'm talking to a young person and not sure what they want to do, I'll, I'll have that conversation. Say, think about you want to become an expert builder, you want to become an expert programmer, you know, figure out where you want to focus your expertise. It's different to work with middle school kids than high school kids. There's a lot of crossover, of course, but you say, all right, I want to become a high school teacher. Okay. Then the question would be, do you you care about, you want to be a good one? Well, here's, you know, then you got to work at it. So who can you learn from? Where will you get that learning? And then you got to practice your trade. And if you do it for many years and you're in the right spot, at a certain point in time, you will be an expert high school teacher in something. So yeah. it's kind of a way of, of looking at it. And, and there's no real shortcuts. You know, sometimes people go, uh, is there a place I can, you know, take a shortcut and get to that expert level? No, there isn't. You have to put in the time. 
it's the, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell, you know, the 10,000 hours. The 10,000 yeah. is not the important thing. It's, but the concept is you've got to put in the time and you got to put the time in with the right direction from the right people. So you want to be listening to people who have been there and know what they're doing. No, that's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. I was speaking about Lisa Hunt, looked up to you as a mentor. So she, she asked me to make sure I got this question in. This is revolves around the book club, the concept. Like, what are you reading right now? And what should adventure practitioners, if they haven't already read it, go out oh. and make sure they've read? The, f- the fifth risk, I'd say, is one, M- Michael Lewis. I'd say Atul Gawande, The Checklist Manifesto. That's probably the only book I've, I've promoted at an ACCT conference. The reason I say the checklist manifesto, if you're going to just do one, that's a good one. It sounds like a book you'd never want to read. Why would I want to read a book about checklists? Very briefly, the point is, he talks about how aviation and medicine became safer because people adopted a, a checklist approach to not making mistakes, to cutting down on errors. We know when accidents happen, you can have an accident happen because the person didn't know what they were supposed to do. But there's a lot of accidents where the staff member knew what they were supposed to do, but failed to, to execute the procedure correctly. That's what the checklist manifesto is about. Not sure if you're a podcast listener, but are you listening to any podcasts out there? And what's your favorite one at the moment? Uh, I'm not, but I'm going, I'm going to. I'm going to listen to the uh, vertical playpen. <laughs> Last question. Is there any question that I should have asked you, but I didn't. I feel, you know, I'm, I'm going to count on you guys to edit this because this is off the top of my head. I didn't really prepare anything. So I'm, if this is a trust exercise for me. I'm going to trust <laughs> you and Phil to edit this and make it coherent and edit out any stuff that didn't make any sense. So No, I appreciate you taking the time today. It was, uh, it's, it's fun to have conversations with you, Bob, always. And then, you know, to share that with our listeners here too, I'm sure they're going to pull great nuggets of learning and information out of this. And so we, we really appreciate you taking the time to do. Well, I, I, I I hope it's helpful. I think people, I found people are fascinated by accidents and what went wrong. So you could do, I'm not suggesting we do any more, but if you ever were looking at something else, you could say, you could ask me, Tell me about this accident. What happened and what did we learn? And that's, you know, you could do hours of that. And I find that that, I find that that's endlessly fascinating. Now that wouldn't be for everybody. That might not, that might be a more specific audience. I was thinking about my first program and how impactful I believe these programs are. When we do these programs, that don't just mean me. I think when, when we as a field do good programming, it's incredible yep. what it does. And I was thinking of trying to think of an example of that. I had an opportunity a number of years ago to go camping on an island up in Maine with a bunch of friends. And the friends included a former student who had grown up and had grown kids. And I paddled into the campground and in the dark in the night. And the daughter of one of my former students heard that I was coming and she'd heard my name, but we'd never met before. And out of the dark, I heard this voice because I didn't, couldn't even see her because it was dark. She said, you're, you're, you're the guy that saved my dad's life. You know, he, he feels that if he hadn't found this early project adventure program from where he was from and his background and what happened to other members of his family. And he's like a very successful uh, guy now. And that's, that's the story that his daughter heard. Uh, yeah. that our program, our first program had literally saved his life. All right. Here's one other, here's other one, another one that you probably don't want to use. This came up the other day. I'll just tell you this. Can I do just my last story on one of our webinars, one of our friends from Japan, Tamagawa U- university. And he said, uh, he said, uh, tell, tell Austin the story of the Pikachu. The last time I was in Japan, I was doing an advanced skills and standards at this training site. And this uh, nice young man, Shinji was there. And we were going over rescue procedures. And you know, from teaching rescues all these years, you always have that language issue of what do you call uh, the person that's being rescued? You, you kind of hate to call them the victim, even though if you say victim, people know who you mean. But the victim has never been a very satisfactory term. 
And when you're doing a training workshop in Japan, you also have a translator. You have to say what you want to say and then give the translator a chance to explain. So we were debating this issue, talking about getting ready to do cutaway rescues. And we, and we said, well, let's not call them the victim. What should we call them? And just drawing on my random knowledge of Japanese culture, I said, why don't we call them the Pikachu? Well, that <laughs> resonated with those guys. And according to Shinji, now in Japan, uh, the person being rescued is the Pikachu. Anyway, I thought it was a nice story. I don't think it, you want to necessarily use it in the podcast, but you can if you want. But because uh, it doesn't really fit in anywhere, it's just a nice, a nice story. So, yeah, no, that's an awesome story. Thanks, awesome. Chris. I I enjoyed doing it. Good luck with the editing. And uh, yeah, thank you. And we'll be in touch. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about? Thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting us a the guy. <laughs>